Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Stand with me, please. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. Verse 1, Jesus speaking says, All this I have told you so that you would not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Lord, bless your word today. We just pray, as Lisa prayed, that it would just find good and fertile ground in our hearts. It would make a difference in our lives. We ask in your name. Amen. I heard a story about attempts to ship fresh North Atlantic cod from Boston to San Francisco during the 19th century. At that time, the only way to ship those fish to the West Coast was to sail around the South American continent, which was a trip that took several months. As you can imagine, the first attempts to dress the cod in Boston and pack them in ice failed miserably. By the time they reached California, well, the fish weren't exactly fit for consumption. Next, the cods were placed in holding tanks of water shipped to California alive and then dressed there. Still, the results were less than satisfactory. You see, the fish didn't get much exercise during the trip, and as a result, they were pasty and relatively tasteless. Finally, someone hit upon an interesting idea. Why don't we put some catfish in there with them, since catfish are the cod's natural enemy? And sure enough, when a few catfish were placed in those tanks with them, the cod were alert and swimming around. This time, when they reached San Francisco, they were in perfect shape, although I'm sure they were pretty stressed out in need of fish therapy. But you know what? Like those cod, we need the catfish of trials and persecutions to make us strong and vibrant, and that's part of what we'll be looking at this morning. Look at verse 1 with me. These things I've spoken to you so that you should not be made to stumble. Let's first acknowledge that no one wants trials and persecutions, but we should expect them as part of following Christ. Asian Access, which is a Christian missions agency in South Asia, listed a series of questions that some of the church planners have been asking new believers who are considering baptism. The country is predominantly Hindu, but over the past few decades, Christianity has grown in popularity, especially among the poor and tribal people. The following six questions serve as a reality check for what new followers might experience if they decide to go public with their decision to follow Christ. Here are the questions. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them, and then share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to be beaten rather than to deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? And finally, are you willing to die 
for Jesus. Now those questions serve as a sober reminder for all Christians from every continent of what it might cost to follow the Lord. These questions also help Western Christians identify with the threats faced by our brothers and sisters from other countries as they seek to follow Christ. We have been looking at the fact over the past few weeks that Jesus has been warning us that the world is going to hate us. But today he takes it to the next step and tells us not only is the world going to hate us, but even those involved in false religion are going to hate us. And they are going to think that God is on their side while they are doing this. Now, when the human authors of Scripture prepared their manuscripts, they wrote in the style of that time, which did not include things like punctuation, breaks between words, or chapter and verse divisions. These were added later by editors and translators, and they are not considered inerrant, as is the original text. Now, ordinarily, the locations of these chapter breaks make good logical sense. However, the break between chapter 15 and 16 is a little unfortunate. John 16, 1 through 4 really belongs with the end of chapter 15. These things refers to everything Jesus had to say about the believer's relationship to the world, which is strained at best, hostile at other times, and can become deadly. However, as with many of Jesus' lessons, they did not take heed, and all of them stumbled and fell. Think about it. Upon his arrest, they fled. During his crucifixion, most hid. Before his resurrection, all despaired. After his resurrection, they doubted. And before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they faltered. Only after receiving the Holy Spirit did they then act decisively and begin to speak boldly. If we remember the words of Christ, it is a safeguard against us stumbling. Paul discovered that when a person trusts Jesus Christ, the core priorities of their lives will fundamentally change. He wrote this to the people of Corinth when he said, He died for everyone, so that all who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Now, when I read those words honestly, I get a little uncomfortable. That means that Jesus just didn't die so that one day I could go to heaven. He died so that I might stop living for myself right now. Now, over the years, I've read lots of books about following Jesus. Typically, they tend to make me feel guilty because either I'm not rejoicing enough or witnessing enough or giving enough or praying enough or they make Jesus, following Jesus sound like a piece of cake and that life will only get better and better as I get holier and holier. If I will just put into practice these five time-tested tips and seven life-changing principles that the author has based his current book, seminar series, website, or DVD curriculum on, then everything in my life will be just peachy. But I find very few books that lay out the paradoxical truth of the matter, which is, one, following Jesus isn't always easy, practical, fun, or popular, because temptation hounds us every step of the way, every day of our lives. And two, 
through it all, God's grace and forgiveness are powerfully available and instantly accessible to everyone everywhere all the time. So we see that we live in the middle of a deep and rich paradox. Jesus has won the war, but we still must fight not for victory, but from victory. We must never forget that evil will enjoy short-term victories, but that Christ has already conquered evil, sin, disease, suffering, death, and decay. Persecution is inevitable, and in many cases, fatal. However, death is not the end of life. The resurrection awaits, in which we will exist beyond the reach of this world and all of its affliction. We must never forget that one day Christ will return to silence the enemies of God through a crushing defeat. He was vindicated through his resurrection and we will be vindicated through ours. Sadly, Christians are notorious for remembering what we ought to forget and forgetting what we ought to remember. What I mean is we should forget our confessed sin and we should remember that Christ has forgiven it and conquered it. But we should also remember that persecution is inevitable even as we anticipate his ultimate triumph. And that's why Jesus warns us, so that we will not stumble. Now, stumbling translates a form of the verb scandalezo, and the related noun that literally refers to the bait stick in a trap. The term refers figuratively to the disciples being caught off guard like an animal ensnared in a trap. And had Jesus not warned them of this persecution that they are going to face, the disciples might have become shocked and disillusioned so that their faith might have faltered. The events that transpired later that evening showed the timeliness of the Lord's warning. Despite being told by Jesus to expect persecution, the disciples wilted at the very first sign of it, even though it was not aimed at them, but at him. On the way to Gethsemane from the upper room, Jesus told them, you will all fall away from me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Later that evening when Jesus was arrested, his prediction came true as we read in Matthew 26. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out to arrest me with swords and clubs as you would a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me then. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then listen to this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now some might question why the Lord warned the disciples against stumbling when he knew that they would shortly do just that. Now it is true that in his omniscience, Jesus knew what was going to happen. But the point is that the disciples were responsible for their actions. They have been given the resources they needed to stand firm and not stumble, including the warning that persecution was imminent. Yet, they failed to utilize those resources, and when the moment of truth came, they capitulated under the pressure and fled. But it gets way worse. You're thinking, great. 
Look at verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that they are doing God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So not only does the world hate us, even the so-called religious world is now going to join in on the fun. But one new emphasis is the specifics of the coming persecutions, which include excommunication and murder. Now the other quite startling revelation is that these will be inflicted upon the disciples not by the secular world, but by religious people. The first part is Jesus warns them that they are going to be kicked out of their synagogues. Now this does not have the same effect as getting kicked out of an American church. Allow me to explain. To gain the full force of this, we must understand that exclusion from the synagogue was not like a person being denied membership in a local church congregation today. To be denied membership in a contemporary American church, or even to be put out of one for one reason or another, is not nearly as serious. And if worse comes to worse, and you're unable to gain admission into any church, it is still possible to function in American society without any type of church membership. But this was not the case in the matter of excommunication from the Jewish synagogue. For one thing, excommunication meant separation from the spiritual life of Israel. For the one who was excommunicated, there would be no worship, no sacrifices, not even the reading of the scripture as the Bible was not available to the average person. The scriptures could only be heard in places of worship. So to be excommunicated meant losing those benefits and more. Moreover, the banning of an individual from the synagogue would have a devastating effect upon his social life and his economic well-being. Former friends would shun him, considering him to be a heretic and a pagan. He would also be exiled from his family and ostracized. He would lose his job or else if he was self-employed, his customers. He would even be refused the right of an honorable burial. So in speaking of excommunication from the synagogue, Jesus was warning his disciples against a threat with horrific consequences. What would happen is you would be first be brought in for a religious trial. Now in the synagogue, there was a place where court cases were held. If you were found guilty, sometimes you were beaten right on the spot. They had four men for this job. One would read the crime, the other would read the sentence, the third guy would beat you, and the fourth guy would count the blows. And sometimes it is recorded that they sang worship songs while they were beating you. And you think Calvary Chapel is tough. But now we turn to the next part that says these people will get to the point that they will think that by killing you, they are offering a holy service to God Almighty. There's an old German proverb that says, Not all who carry long knives are cooks. In the same way, not all who lay claim to the title church are the church. Not all who wear ecclesiastical garb and who preach sermons are ministers. Look, the followers of Jesus Christ have always faced the world's hostility from the inception of the church. 
the apostles and those closely associated with them endured intense persecution. They were ridiculed, scorned, denounced, hunted, arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. Many even paid the ultimate price, giving their lives as martyrs for the sake of their Savior. A brief survey of ancient Christian tradition reveals that Peter, Andrew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, were all crucified. Bartholomew was whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded, as was the apostle Paul. Thomas was stabbed with spears, and Mark was dragged through the, to death through the streets of Alexandria. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned by the order of the Sanhedrin. As Clement of Rome, a contemporary of the apostles who died around A.D. 100, observed, Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Before his conversion, none other than the apostle Paul was a zealous persecutor of Christians. After being arrested by the Roman soldiers outside the temple, he told the mob that had been trying to kill him, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. But after Paul's conversion, the hater became the hated, the hunter became the hunted, and the persecutor became the persecuted. In virtually every city he visited, Paul faced opposition from the Jews, Gentiles, or both. Therefore, fulfilling the Lord's prediction concerning him when he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, in the generations that followed, the persecution continued. Under the Roman emperors of the first three centuries, thousands of faithful believers were arrested, tortured, and killed. Now, one notable example is that of Polycarp, the aged bishop of Smyrna. Around A.D. 160, he was arrested for being a Christian and tied to a stake and burned. But before that, when asked to deny Christ, Polycarp stood for him. He told his accusers, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? The persecution of the true church again reached a fever pitch during the Protestant Reformation. Appalled by the moral and doctrinal corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and emboldened by the clear teaching of Scripture, the Reformers denounced the Catholic system of indulgences and the false gospel of works righteousness. Now, the response from Rome was venomous and violent. According to Protestant historian John Dowling, the Roman Catholic Church put to death more than 50 million so-called heretics between A.D. 606 in the mid-1800s. Godly leaders like John Huss, Hugh Latimer, and William Tyndale were among those martyred for their faith. When the chain was put around John Huss, securing him to the stake on which he was to be born, burned, he said with a smile, My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake, and why should I be ashamed of this rusty one? When asked to recant, Huss declined, saying, what I taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. He died singing a hymn as the flames engulfed his body. Now, in many places around the world today, believers continue to face intense persecution. And while exact numbers are difficult to reconstruct, 
Historians estimate the number of Christian martyrs in the last century to be in the tens of millions. Now that is true even today in nations where the name of the Allah and the militant Islam stands violently opposed to Christianity. Though other nations such as communist states also remain antagonistic. But the folly of attempting to serve a false god by murdering God's people reveals the depth to which sinful darkness blankets the minds of the unconverted. In addition, an incalculable number of faithful believers have been arrested, beaten, or otherwise persecuted short of death, all on account of their loyalty to Christ. Now you may be thinking, how could seemingly religious people commit such atrocities with the guise of worshiping God? These things, Jesus explained, they will do. Why? Because they have not known the Father nor me. Far from serving God, such people do not in any case know the true God, since no one who hates Jesus Christ or his followers knows the Father. It was Blaise Pascal who said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Now this, of course, is one of the things that atheists and non-believers immediately point to. See there? All religion does is cause division and hatred. All religions are the same and dangerous. Just think of the Muslim extremists who destroyed those buildings and were convinced they were doing God's will. Ergo, all religions are basically the same and they are all dangerous. But are they? Does being fundamental make you mental? Consider the Amish. Now, there are some things about the Amish that I admire. I jokingly told Connie that one good thing about having an Amish wife is if you need to go to the store, it doesn't take two hours to get ready. No, they just have to put on their little bonnet, and it's like, all right, let's go. Now, the Amish are very conservative. The Amish are very patriarchal. The Amish will not even wear modern clothes. The Amish are traditional, and the Amish are incredibly religious. The Amish are absolutely convinced that they have the truth. But let me ask you, are you really worried about Amish terrorism? I mean, what are they going to do, drive their horse and buggy into a building? Now, there are other, there are other problems with this view, however, and that is what many people never hear. The communist Russian, Chinese, and Cambodian regimes of the 20th century all rejected all organized religion and belief in God. Now, a forerunner of these were the French Revolution, which rejected religion for human reason. Now, these societies were all rational and secular, yet each one of them produced massive violence against its own people without the influence of religion, and by the way, cause far more casualties than religion ever has. So, can religion produce evil? Well, sure it can. But that does not mean that they are all wrong. You see, everyone has their own personal bias when it comes to matters of faith, whether you are a Christian, an atheist, or a Satanist. Consider an illustration. 
Imagine that one of the board members of the local gay, lesbian, and transgender community centers announces, I've become a Christian, and now I believe homosexuality is a sin. Now, as the weeks go by, he persists on making that assertion. Now, imagine that a board member of the Alliance Against Same-Sex Marriages announces, I have discovered that my son is gay. I think he has the right to marry his partner. No matter how personally gracious and flexible the members of each of those groups are, there will come a day when each group will have to say, you must step off of the board because you don't share a common commitment with us. Now, the first of those communities has a reputation for being inclusive and the second for being exclusive. But in practice, both of them operate in the exact same way. Each is based upon common beliefs that are act as boundaries, including some and excluding others. So neither community is being narrow. They're just being communities. Verse 4, please. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you remember, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. In his book, God Tells the Man Who Cares, A.W. Tozer observes a dangerous perspective among Christians. He writes, Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We're here to frolic. We're not in a foreign land. We're at home. We're not getting ready to live. We're already living. He then says, We cannot afford to think this way. The longer we live here, the more homesick we should become. Let our prayer be the amen to John's, Come, Lord Jesus. Years later in his first epistle, Peter is going to echo the Lord's prediction when he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that are coming upon you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. One thing I love about Jesus is he never glossed over the truth when it came to counting the cost of being his disciple. And Luke 9.23 said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Later, he told a parable illustrating that truth when he said, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And then Jesus says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who is not willing to give up everything. That tells me that Christ does not offer his followers the way of comfort and ease, but a hard and difficult path. And though the gate is small 
and the road is narrow. It is certainly well worth a strenuous journey, for it alone leads to life and to eternal glory. Thus Paul could write in the midst of his multitudinous trials, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. So we need to be up front with people when we are telling them about Christ. We have to tell them, no, it's not going to be roses and rainbows all the time. In fact, it's going to make you hated, and it may even get you killed. You see, one of the fallacies of the false gospel is evident in some forms of their evangelism. By that, I mean that they are inclined to present the gospel in such a favorable light that the disadvantages from a human point of view of following Christ are completely forgotten. Now, granted, in spiritual terms, there are no disadvantages. Spiritually, all we lose is our sin, and in its place, we get the fullness of God's salvation. Nevertheless, from the point of view of the unregenerate person, there is a cost of discipleship. For it means leaving everything that might deter us from God's will for our life taking up our cross, and following Jesus. Now, the next reason why Christians can rejoice in persecutions is that they, more than anything else, allow the believer to show forth the supernatural radiance of the Christian life. If all is going well in our lives and we rejoice, what's so remarkable about that? Anybody can do that. But if all is going wrong and we rejoice... That is remarkable, and other people will notice. Like when Paul and Silas sang praises to God at midnight in the jail at Philippi. Now, the jailer had seen many prisoners. He had seen sullen prisoners, rebellious prisoners, hopeful prisoners, dejected prisoners. But I am sure he had never seen prisoners who could rejoice in the midst of severe beatings and captivity as Paul and Silas was doing. Thus, when the Lord subsequently opened the gates of the prison to permit his faithful missionaries to leave, the jailer fell at their feet observing, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why? He had seen Jesus in them. Plus, we have the guide and support of the Holy Spirit today. He would comfort, strengthen, and aid the disciples in the midst of their conflict with the world, and he still does that for us this morning. As Leon Morris writes, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church is done in the context of persecution. The Spirit is not a guide and a helper for those on a straight way, perfectly able to manage on their own. He comes to assist men and women caught up in the thick of the battle and tried beyond their strength. Jesus makes it quite plain that the way before his followers is a hard and difficult way. As we finish up today, in one of my earlier sermons many years ago, I shared an illustration that Billy Graham gives concerning this principle. He tells of a friend who went through the Depression, losing a job, a fortune, a wife, and his home. But he was a believer in Christ, and he held tenaciously to his faith, even though he was very depressed and cast down by those circumstances. One day in the midst of his agony, he stopped to watch some men doing some stonework to a large church in the city. 
What are you going to do with that, he asked the man who was busy chiseling a piece of triangular stone. The workman stopped and pointed to a small opening near the top of the spire. See that little opening near the top, he asked? Well, I'm shaping this down here so it will fit in up there. The friend said that his tears filled his eyes as he walked away from the workman, for it seemed that God had spoken to him personally to tell him that he was perfecting him for heaven through that earthly ordeal. And God is doing the same with us. Let us pray. Lord, I do thank you that you are the only one who really loves us. The only one who always has our best in mind. Even if that means sometimes having to walk through trials and persecutions and valleys. You are the God of the mountain and you're also the God of the valley. We want to be mature robust Christians, Lord. And I know that in that, that means that there will be trials and temptations and things that we wouldn't choose to go through. And Lord, if that is not our desire to be that kind of Christian, I pray you would change that and make that our desire. We ask in your name. Amen.